John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 319.mk1610, certificate number 34312, death discs. If it's true, John, as Damien Hurst once said, that all art is about dying. That has certainly never been more true than between, say, 1960 and 1964 in American popular music. Oh, so American popular music during this era was all about death? <laughs> well, it's kind of a fallow period in rock, right? Uh, Elvis is in the army as of 1958. Right. The Beatles British haven't in- quite hit yet. Yeah, British invasion won't happen until 64. And so this is kind of universally regarded as a dark Pat Boone dominated time is this in our uh, musical history. Th- but this is also pre Motown girl group or right at the, at the dawn of Motown girl group. Yeah. This is the very beginning of Motown, the Tamla label, which is what Motown was then called. Their first big hit was, uh, you know, Mar- Marvelettes. Yeah. Marvelettes. Please yeah. Mr. Postman 1961. And there's this very odd phenomenon where a bunch of hit songs all concern gruesome teenage death like at the hands of murderers <laughs> no it's not mac the knife it's not <laughs> it's not uh opera or operetta it's largely drag racing oh you know broken glass on dead man's curve and screeching brakes and revving motorcycle engines so there were enough of these that this actually constitutes a like a cultural phenomenon? Yeah, there are dozens of these, and many were big hits. Um, in 1960, there's a full month on the Billboard Hot 100 chart where the number one song is a teen death ballad. Uh, at first, it's for the first couple of weeks of the month, it's Running Bear hmm. by J.P. Richardson, the big bopper. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the third and least famous victim of the... Day the music died. The uh, right, the, crash the, the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly. He's right. the asterisk in the Buddy Holly Richie <laughs> Valens crash. <laughs> and you, you know, he Chantilly Lay's his biggest hit was a top ten hit, but this song that he uh, had written but uh, had not made a hit, Running Bear, um, did not become a number one hit until the year after he died. Oh, interesting. And and so it ends up being his biggest hit, a yes, posthumous but, one. Yes, but recorded by another artist, Johnny Preston. Oh. Running Bear. 
love little white dove with a love big at the sky. Uh, and it's really one of these sort of historical novelty songs like the Battle of New Orleans and uh-huh. Please Mr. Custer or whatever. Uh-huh. Short it's, people. <laughs> I don't think short people is the same era. But it's, uh, you know, there was this era of kind of uh, funny his- American history novelty songs. Oh, right. And this is that kind of a thing. It's a Romeo and Juliet thing between two young Indians with, I think, really sort of insulting background chanting and percussion. Right, of course. But, you know, the, their tribes want to keep them apart, but of course they keep swimming across this river to see each other until the night when they don't survive. As their hands touched and their lips met, the raging river pulled them down. Now they'll always be together in that happy hunting ground. Oh. So it's so it's in the flavor, I mean, I guess in the 1970s there were these songs like The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Disaster songs, right? Uh, the day the music died, as you referenced already. But this is some. This is like teens. This seems to come more from like American folk ballads, right? Yeah, like yeah. "Oh My Darling Clementine," you know, <laughs> falling into the water, and Frankie and Johnny, and you know, all these tales of young love gone violently wrong. And I think this was a period, the beginning of a period of of reflection on Native American identity but still not very Yeah, they're not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess the 50s were like, that was the heyday of the Western. Sure. So all those baby boomer kids in their little hat and cap guns would be, as they got into the teenage years, kind of susceptible to this idea of like, they were thinking a lot about Indians, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it was it was the red man right. with his war paint. So does this song actually have like ho wo 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 in the background? Yeah. It's more of a kind of a ooga 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 kind of a thing. <laughs> so bad. I'm guessing it's not terribly tribally accurate. So this was number this was a number one song. For and, for two weeks. And, and then, then for the for the remaining three weeks of the month, it's kind of the real beginning of what we would recognize as this kind of uh, dead rebel. Mm-hmm. on this asphalt mm-hmm. kind of a song because Teen Angel by Mark Dinning hits oh, number one. Teen Angel. Uh, Mark Dinning was a just former Oklahoma teen turkey farmer uh-huh. uh, whose babysitter as a kid, by the way, was a young Patty Page. Well, his, his babysitter changed her name and went to Nashville, I guess, and became famous. This was back when an Arkansas turkey farmer could have a number one hit and then presumably what, go back to the turkey farm or whatever happened to him? Was this a, was he a, a one hit wonder? He had some minor hits and apparently a drinking problem. It's not clear whether the, you know, to me, whether the drinking problem is a result of only being known for Teen Angel, which he recorded at 26 and then forgotten, or if it's the cause of his declining quality of work. Teen Angel, can you see me? Are you somewhere up above? And am I still? And the, the uh, titular teen in Teen Angel is killed by a train? Yeah. Do you know the story? I mean, I know she's clutching his high school ring when Spoilers. they find her bo- Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of these have car crashes, but this is the only one where the car is apparently, like, parked at the time. Well, it stalls out on the track. On the railroad track, Which right. was a thing that used to, I guess, happen a lot because... It's always in movies. It's in a lot of silent movies, right? (laughs) He says, I pulled you out and we were safe. 
Why did he have to pull her out if the car was stalled? What is? I just yeah went around and opened the door. He's such a gentleman. <laughs> Maybe this is if if you're looking for evidence in this song that he doesn't have a real girlfriend but one of these Japanese body pillows, uh-huh. <laughs> this this would be it. <laughs> the, the car stalled, he but pulled her out. He still has to pull her out. Uh, but then she yeah she goes running back and he for it, what? Well, as we find out in the second verse, what was it you were looking for that oh, took your God. life that night? They said you found my high school ring clutched oh, in your fingers. That's tied. it. She went back for the ring. What a tragedy for that guy. You know, it was only because of her desperate teenage love for him that she's no longer with him. Although it seems like to me, it's a little bit of a red herring because if the car was destroyed by a train, the ring would still be in it. I mean, you'd just go over to the wreckage of the car and. Right. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> it's not like the ring. It's not like the car was about to be vaporized <laughs> by a laser beam. Like when the, the Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen has to go back into the booth to get his watch, you know? Right. It might have been vaporized. That was a little more logical than what uh, the Teen Angel does in her titular song. And these songs often end with a, you know, a, a plea that their love is going to be ongoing. You yeah. Know, Teen Angel, are you somewhere up above? And am I still your one true love? Yeah, probably. Probably that girl you were making <laughs> making out with on the railroad tracks. At, <laughs> For all at, eternity. At 17. Probably you guys were going to be great yeah. together. <laughs> I wonder if that's a, an excuse that he's, you know, he might be a uh, forever alone and he, for the rest of his life, he's just going to be like, no, my heart still belongs to the to teen, angel. teen angel. Or he could have murdered her. You know, we don't know. Oh, sure. sure this isn't the first person. This could be a, uh, this could be an alibi song. The story does not seem too likely that she would go running back to get, to get a high school ring. No, but. After he pulled her out. But then again, high school rings were very important in the fifties and who knows? Yeah. Is this song sponsored by Justin's? Is this an, <laughs> is this an advertisement for, uh, for gaudy <laughs> class rings? Uh, yeah. Well, do you have a friend in the diamond business? That's the ultimate question. At the time it was very, it was, uh, considered very edgy, this song. Oh. You know, this idea that teens would be listening to a tearjerker ballad about death. This was kind of gritty. Right. So like there were letters to the editor and 17 magazine said that, you know. Oh, that this was The proper young lady should not be listening to this sort of thing. I see. Uh, there was a UK headline that said that referring to the record that said blood runs in the grooves. Of Teen Angel, which is, you know, the song does not really, even though these were called splatter platters. At the time? At the time. This particular song has very little splatter. Yeah, although let your imagination run wild. I guess you have to, you know. Maybe it's even worse because you have to picture the oncoming train. Yeah. And the girl fishing around in the glove box for the high school ring. So this did get on the front page of the newspaper, and so presumably inspired a generation of songwriters to like, Hey, this, that, that got a lot of publicity, the dead teen. Why don't I write a dead teen song? Yeah. If you're looking into why there's this sudden four year burst of these songs, I mean, you really have to start with capitalism. You know, these two songs were a huge hit and suddenly everybody is chasing that format. You know, people want to write the song like the song that was popular last summer. That still happens now in movies and TV and everything else. But it seems to me, you know, that the emphasis on cars and the bad boys that are in Mm. a lot of these songs, Mm -hmm. I mean, the Teen Angel is not. The Teen Angel seems like a perfectly nice young man who just maybe should have kept a closer eye on his jewelry. Yeah, seems like a turkey farmer that got a little bit over his head. (laughs) By the way, uh, Mark Dinning, the turkey farmer, the uncle of Dean Dinning, 
bassist for Toad the Wet Sprocket. No. I swear. That is a... So for for futurelings who probably (laughs) are aware of 1950s culture, probably not aware of Toad the Wet Sprocket culture. There's no Rebel Without a Cause level classic masterpiece commemorating the Toad the Wet Sprocket era. No, and how would you describe that era? That was kind of the... um, what is that, funky grunge? What would you call Toad the Wet Sprocket? <laughs> Toad the Wet Sprocket uh, was such a deeply boring band. I, <laughs> like, I have no, like, I can't even remember. Like, the video for Walk on the Ocean starts on VH1 or whatever, and then I go into some fugue state where, I, you know, I don't even snap out of it for several minutes. If any descendants of a member of Toad the Wet Sprocket are still extant in the distant future... Like, it, it's entirely possible that the sentient coral reef that is the president of the future is thinking to itself, wait a minute, the bass player of Toad the Wet Sprocket is my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It's, now, di- it's difficult to see how a coral reef could be a direct descendant of a member of Toad the Wet Sprocket. Well, it may be that the apocalypse creates DNA sure. mixing. All kinds of weird human coral mm-hmm. uh, perversity. We all get ground up and thrown into the ocean and the, the reef's absorb our DNA and one or two of them mutate. I mean, who knows? Who knows what happens? Rebel Without a Cause is probably a big part of the DNA of these songs, now that I think about it, right? You know, 1955, not just just James Dean's oeuvre, but his real-life death Death in in a a car car crash crash the following year. Because this is the era where the, the teenager is born, not just modern American teenage culture, but just the idea that there's this liminal stage between being a child and an adult. Right. That didn't used to exist, right? You'd go to work in your on your dad's farm or in the carpentry shop or whatever, and you were a grown-up. My mom was, was born in 1934, meaning she was 20 in 1954. And uh, in, in our contemporary time, when you're 20 years old, you're very much consuming contemporary pop music. Right. But she says back in the 50s, by the time you were 20, you were assumed to be a full-grown woman. So when rock and roll came around, when Elvis was on the scene, she considered it teen, you know, like children's music, and she had already made the transition to jazz. Ah. Uh, so there was not a sense. She's a responsible, she's got to get to her job punching cards for IBM That's or right. whatever. And she actually had that job. Are you she, serious? She actually went to work for IBM sitting in an enormous wallless room in a, in a warehouse in Ohio. Not a warehouse, but like an office building. Sure, but one of these giant, the whole floor of the building is a. Yeah, just desks to the horizon and all women sitting at typewriters and producing like punch cards and, you know, things in, in triplicate. For, Invoices. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's the life. So I've always said like, you were there for the birth of rock and roll. And she was like, yeah, I mean, I, I was around, but I wasn't interested in it. So the teen culture, yeah, was produced in the in sort of post-World War II this idea that if you were born in 1945, if your if your dad came back from the war, and you were you were born at the end of 45, you'd be 15 in 1960. The per, probably the perfect age to imagine this kind of eternal undying romance that yeah. that only a train and a and a Justin's <laughs> ring can produce. <laughs> it's it's probably now that I think about it, the first time in history where young people's role models were not their mom and dad, right? Right. right. Like I, I just assume that's true of pretty much any time from ancient Greece to the present that uh, you know 
a 14 year old boy or girl would kind of model their behavior on their mom or dad. Right. Aspired to wear long pants and, and put on their first fedora and just watching their dad shave and yeah, get on with life, uh, you know, wearing mom's pearls in front of the mirror. And now you have another option. You've got Brando or Elvis or whatever. Right. And that's who you've got pictures of in your room. And that's kind of your model of adulthood, right? This kind of surly, loner, probably not a very careful driver, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. doesn't always use his turn signal on dead man curve. With greasy kid stuff in his hair. Right. And so maybe it's a romantic thing as well. You don't want to marry the, uh, you know, you don't want to marry a girl like the girl that married dear old dad. You know, you want to marry the motorcycle guy you saw in the movie or, you know. I've ball. thought about this quite a bit. And I, I do feel like the emphasis post-war in America was on labor-saving devices and sort of... Um, this was the new the uh, new frontier, the modern future. Sure. And so the dishwasher and the washer and dryer and toaster or whatever, um, like indoor plumbing, all these things came to uh, middle America. And then all of a sudden, all these teenagers that in the past would have had chores <laughs> to do, uh, all of a sudden they were just lying around. Mooning about James Dean (laughs) and wishing their boyfriend would hurry up and die in a drag race. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So what followed? Uh, You know, a series of less successful but still kind of iconic Songs. I mean, we still remember Tell Laura I Love Her mm-hmm. uh, just uh, later that year by Ray Peterson. This is the first one where the, the children are named, the teenagers are named, Laura and Tommy. He couldn't get Laura on the phone. So to her mother, Tommy said, Tell Laura I love her. Oh. A lot of these are sort of, you know, old-timey ballads where you really get to know your couple. That's not a thing we have anymore, right? Pop songs where people have names. Uh, let's see. What's a what's a recent? What's the a last recent pop song? song where someone had a name was "Hey There, Delilah." Now I don't know if that's true. There's gotta Brandy. Be... Brandy, you're a fine girl. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> there's got to be something after Brandy. In uh, in Tell Laura I Love Her, the chorus is always Tommy saying "Tell Laura I Love Her." He calls her up to tell her he's going to go to this drag race to try to win a thousand or car race to try to win a thousand dollar prize. Mm-hmm. Which is probably pretty unlikely, right? That's I mean, that's a lot of money. In nineteen sixty dollars, maybe 
I don't know, future links, that's probably millions for you. In our era, that's what? Uh, it's probably a multiplier of almost 10. It's probably close. It's probably $80,000. I mean, it's a lot of, uh, it would have been a lot of cash, but that was an era when people were, were drag racing for pink slips. So <laughs> if you lost the race, you lost your car. Maybe that's where it is. Maybe he gets $80,000 in today's money in... In the form it's, of... In the uh, form of... 57 Corvettes. Chevys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So he, goes, he heads he, off. He goes to a drag race. And at this point, the songwriter's imagination appears to fail. No one knows what happened that day. Hmm. Couldn't, couldn't be, a, couldn't be bothered of, to like write an actual. The hundreds or thousands of people that were at the drag race and <laughs> watched it all go down. Besides <laughs> them, no one knows. Oh, and I forgot to say, he tries to call her, but she's not home. So he tells her mom, tell Laura, I love her. Oh. It's, it's just a cheesy device so that he could say, tell Laura, I love her. Wait, it feels like, though, he had a premonition. Maybe. Maybe if I don't, if I don't return, that seems like he has to know it's a risk. I mean, but a thousand dollars, geez, who is putting on these races where teenagers can just enter an auto race? Well, this is the question, right? Because the suggestion that no one knows what happened makes it seem like it's an illegal drag race that maybe that's true. Had a, had like a corner in it. If he was really just going to the edge of town to go to the speedway, right? probably somebody would know. If this happened. was an authorized race where there was a thousand dollar prize, yeah, you have to assume there's an audience for it. So Tommy's a bad boy. He's in with some kind of criminal crowd mm -hmm. that needed a driver at the last minute for their seamy underbelly gambler filled. Yeah. I don't think it was a drag race. race. I think he was the, I think he was the driver for a heist. Uh, big artists get into the act, 1961, Ebony Eyes by the Everly Brothers. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with the later Rick James song of the same name. This is one of the, this is the one that starts kind of the, the tradition of these uh, songs having a lot of spoken word breaks. Yeah. The plane was way overdue. So I went inside to the airline's desk. And I said, sir, I wonder why 1203 is so late. He said, oh, they probably took off late. I guess probably because it's hard to get the circumstances of a plane crash to rhyme or scan, I guess. So you need to have the plot delivered by a prose voice. Yeah, I, want, I wonder if it's like, you know, if this, this is the prototype of, of the rap break in a dance song, right? <laughs> like Q-Tip comes in and does like a, a minute long. In this case, Q-Tip would be saying, oh, they probably took off late or they may have run into some turbulent weather and had to alter the course. <laughs> that wouldn't be a very good lyric. That's what the kids love. I can't believe no one samples that. Yeah, most of the song is exposition delivered through an airport employee because uh, oh. this kid's true love has not come to... Uh, at a press conference or something. Or no, just like whispering in his ear. Like I think it's at a counter. Uh, you know, the plane, flight 1203 has not come in when Ebony Eyes is going to come and, uh, and they're finally going to be married. Uh, he, uh, he has a weekend pass. Well, this is, an, this is an interesting cross-cultural thing because this was an era uh, where there were suddenly several plane crashes of larger passenger planes. Like prior to this period, if you were, I mean, first of all, air travel was very expensive and very exclusive. You probably didn't know anyone who had, who had taken a commercial flight. No, and commercial flights were like DC-4s or something like that. I would call not a tiny plane, but if a plane went down, it's a dozen passengers, yeah, 15 maybe? people died in a DC three or something like that. But now we had these, this was the dawn of the jet era. And when a plane went down, it was a major news. I mean, it still is a major news event, but then it was like shocking. And it was in the public consciousness now that this was a possibility. This might've been ripped from the headlines then. Yeah. This appears to be the only teen death ballad where, 
the uh, victim is one of many in a in a some kind of national news type catastrophe. Right. She went down in a plane crash. It's like the it's like a Titanic song. Sure. The airport the announcement comes over the loudspeaker telling the singer, you know, with those having relatives or friends on flight number 1203, please report to the chapel across the street at once. No, that's not a good sign. <laughs> Why? That's, isn't it a little odd that the airport conveniently has a chapel across the street to announce all the deaths? <laughs> well, and this was at a time when the presumption was everyone was a Christian or at least wouldn't object. Sure. If anyone wants to go to the synagogue, uh... <laughs> Jeez, there's one in town, I think. (laughs) Well, nowadays there'd be a bunch of people that were like, I refuse to have this information delivered in a church. I I insist on going to the subway here at the food court. Please find a secular Sabaro for me to hear what happened to Flight 1203. Yeah, so it seems like his tragedy is less about teen danger and more about modern, the risks of modern life. It's true. The, uh, these are not particularly cautionary tales, although you have to remember all these teen songs were being written by adults, I guess. Sure. So I'm sure there is some uh, don't date the leader of the pack kind of a subtext to a lot of these songs. But in this one, it's hard to say what it would be. Yeah. Don't, just, don't fly uh, made up Midwest Airlines Flight 1203, I, I guess. I feel like uh, in subsequent years, we, have, we understand now that you can appeal to teenagers by writing a song that seems to recognize their deep feelings of like uh, that everything that happens to them is an enormous tragedy. Well, that is the core of these songs. You know, these songs describe events that actually do feel the way teenagers feel all the time. Right. right? Like, and there's probably some kind of yearning, like, you know, half of a teenager kind of secretly hopes that something big and tragic and ominous will happen. Absolutely. You know, who who wouldn't want to have a doomed romance? Oh, I know. Who wouldn't the rest of your life want to have that class ring around your neck and say, she died clutching my ring. I'll love her forever. And she'll probably love me in teen angel yeah. heaven. Probably when you're about 24, though, you put that in a shoebox. But for that period... 24? At the time, it was probably like 20, you know, yeah. 24, he'd be the last one in his high school married. <laughs> right. Uh, probably, yeah. The day he turns 20, he's like, well, <laughs> a teen angel. Sure. Still miss you. So now we're into 60. 61, there's a whole rash of these from big time crooners. Pat Boone has a number one with Moody River, which is uh, the only one of these to feature a suicide. It's, a, dr- it's a drowning. I looked into the muddy I saw a lonely, lonely face just looking back at me. And the, the story I like about this is Pat Boone recording it at a time when he badly needs a hit. Right. Uh, he leaves the, the studio after recording it to pick up his wife. He picks her up at a friend's house. They get in their car and turn on the radio. And the song is already on. It's the pick hit of the week at some local top 40 station. Between the time he recorded the same day? <laughs> yeah, after he picks up his wife. He, he uh, calls his producer to find out what's going on. It turns out the producer was so sure this was a hit that he made an acetate from the master and walked it just across the street to the radio station and said, put this on, it's Pat Boone's new hit. Wow. I guess you can kind of do that today with, uh, you know, YouTube and digital distribution. Sure, you know? put, it, put it up on the, on the web, say, like, I'm working on this tune, and it's already a hit. And you can be a viral smash by afternoon. But that was the 1961 equivalent of that. Roy Orbison does one of my favorite one of these, the little-known Leah. It's the only one where the teen death is a pearl-diving accident. 
Gotta get a lot of oysters, find some pearls today To make a pretty necklace for Leah Leah Which seems like a very exclusively Japanese cultural thing, but Leah's not much of a Japanese name. I think it's Polynesian. This is um, this is still in the height of uh, Hawaii fever, Polynesian tiki bars. America is briefly in love with this kind of watered-down idea of the South Seas. Well, this also came from a World War II experience. All those American sailors who were stationed in the Southeast and fought in the Pacific Ocean came back with sort of Polynesian um, exposure. Diseases. <laughs> maybe diseases sorry but it, sorry exposure but exposure right a lot of them spent a bunch of time in hawaii and then they island hopped down through the south pacific so this stuff uh tiki torches and uh statues and uh printed shirts this was all the rage i never thought about that yeah. that's interesting like when i think about this boom and you know when i'm at the tiki room in disneyland uh, where, by the way, the birds sing words and the flowers croon in the yes. tiki 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 room. Right. I think about, ah, Hawaiian statehood, 1959, you know, Dole Pineapple looking to get their name out there. But you're right. Like, there's a whole generation of Americans who had been in Hawaii and, and thought of the South Seas as kind of a, you know, attainable paradise. Yeah. Prior to that, I mean, your average American would have no idea even where Hawaii was on a map. And... um and I think Hawaiian statehood is maybe a product of that. I think you're right. Both westward expansion, but also that familiarity and that sense. Everyone in America knew where Pearl Harbor was. Hawaii was a was a real focus of that period. Uh, anyway, in, in Leah, Roy Orbison is improbably a young Polynesian lad who's got to go diving in the bay to find hmm. a big enough pearl for his girl. Uh, and then in the third, in the third verse, something's wrong. I cannot move around. My leg is caught. It's pulling me down. Uh oh. This may be some kind of uh, octopus attack or a giant clam. A giant clam. That's what I. That's what I picture. Are you picturing his yeah. his foot caught in the giant clam? Stuck in a clam, which increases kind of the sexual tension for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's but then there's a, a twist worthy of M Night Shyamalan. Futurelings, a, a, a beloved director of our period who never went wrong. Uh, <laughs> and now it's over. I'm awake at last. Ah, oh, it was just a dream. Old heartaches and memories from the past. It was just another dream about my lost love. So maybe she drowned trying to get him a pearl? She was caught in a giant clam? It's difficult to say who the clam actually ate. But anyway, his dreams about his lost love have a certain aquatic character that implies it may have been a drowning. Although as a teenager, it could just be that she moved to a different town. Yeah, my lost love. <laughs> <laughs> she started dating Greg. <laughs> yeah, maybe this guy's from Indiana. He's never been near the ocean, but... These are his dreams. Yeah, my lost love is I wrote her a long letter, and I don't think she ever read it. <laughs> Let's write a song about it. Later that year, Del Shannon wrote The Prom. Del Shannon, interestingly, uh, I believe was actually mooted as a replacement for Roy Orbison in The Traveling Wilburys. Really? In the early 90s, yeah. There was sort of a moment of Shannon renaissance at that time, but I think he died shortly thereafter. Yeah, I mean, Roy Orbison was a major figure uh, both both Del Shannon and Roy Orbison would have been hit makers at this time, but I I would I would put Roy Orbison in a different class. Absolutely, I mean Del Shannon is certainly your substitute, fill in Roy Orbison, but he I think he died the next year. Oh, and so so it's still no matter which fifth uh, Wilbury you pick, 
ears. Whoever ear. you choose will immediately, the, the crooner you pick will immediately <laughs> die. Probably saying, whoa, 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 that hurts. I think it's, it was a way to keep there from ever being a Wilbury reunion. And now there's only two Wilburys left. It's true. And in your age, future links, it's almost certain that Bob Dylan and, uh, and Jeff Lynne even are no more. It Although maybe, maybe Jeff Lynne's head is in a giant jar, giant to contain his afro. It does not seem like anything can kill Bob Dylan. I mean, people are dropping right and left, but Dylan survives. Yeah, I wonder if it's the Keith Richards thing where he's essentially jerky now, you know? Yeah, right, turned to beef jerky. There's mean. no tissue to kill. <laughs> Rather yes, than exactly. that he's a jerk, no. which, which I think both Dylan and Keith Richards they, they are. They are both jerks, <laughs> but I mean they are literally dried smoked meat yeah. at this point. Uh, Del Shannon's song is called The Prom, and it's a little bit of a mystery. A guy's walking to prom. Uh, apparently he's going to meet his date there. It, the song is unclear. When he sees a crowd, he walks up and the crowd is surrounding a body. Twist, the body is his prom date. Of course. She's gone, she's gone. There lies the one I love, the one I'll always love. If I'd have picked her up on time, the precious love would still be mine. And how did she die? Nobody knows? No, there's no reveal. He says if he'd picked her up on time, so maybe she's hurrying, she crosses the street. I assume it's automotive. Because, you know, if she dies of a, you know, a sudden stroke or a household accident, it's hard to say that he could have saved her by. Or if she fell from a, from a height, she was straightening a shelf perhaps and fell off a a small stepladder. Oh, it could be. The implication could be that because he was late to the prom, she killed herself, which would be very teenage in public. Apparently just like she walked to the center of town. He's six minutes late. (laughs) She impales herself with a corsage. (laughs) Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. And so this uh, now is this phenomenon a few years old now. We're into the mid-60s or early mid-60s. Yeah, the phenomenon becomes a little more mature. And there's a few last great masterpieces. Uh, Last Kiss, 1962, J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. You may not know. I don't remember J. Frank Wilson. Nor his Cavaliers. (laughs) I feel like. His singing Cavaliers. I feel like there have been a couple of bands called the Cavaliers. Uh, But you will know it if you hear it. It's the one that starts, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. So I can see my baby. How did she die? 
Uh, this one is a particularly grisly example of the genre based on, I think on a real, a real car crash, the screaming tires, the busting glass, the painful scream that I heard last. I remember this song. Yeah. It's spooky. That's very visceral. Um, how, what percentage of these songs, uh, have the girl dying versus the boy dying? It sounds like the girl dies every time. Uh, that's not true. It's the opposite uh, opposite gender sex of, of the, the singer. singer yes. I see. I see. Except in Leah, where he dies, and then it turns out it's a twist, and turns, he didn't. <laughs> right. The giant clam had other plans. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So if it's a if it's a male if it's a male crooner if it's Roy Orbison then it's then it's Leah his, his beautiful Leah or Tammy or whoever. And if it's a woman, it's her dangerous bad boy who just could not bring himself to slow down. Got it. Uh, Last kiss was recorded by Pearl Jam. Interestingly, hmm. I don't know if you remember this. Eddie Vedder found the LP uh, right here in Seattle in the Fremont Antique Mall. In fact, a thrift store. I assume you have spent uh, in fact quite the, a bit of time the in. The two chairs in my living room are from the Fremont Antique Mall. Well, Eddie Vedder was n- less inspired to decorate his living room yeah. because he can buy and sell little people like us. Sure, but he was inspired to record this uh, '60s tearjerker with his band. And is there a version in the spirit of the original or is it all like shing, shing, ding, yeah, no, 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 yeah. That sounds like an actual clip. <laughs> well, let's listen. No, well, well. The screaming tires, the busting So it's like, it's, it's pretty strummy for Pearl Jam. It's like... Yeah, he slowed it down. Yeah, a little he's folk really, tune. He's really thinking about the busting glass and the screeching tires, mm-hmm. you know? He's a... Because Eddie's a deeper guy than Wayne Cochran and his Cavaliers. Yeah. Well, oh, well, shama no, no. And interestingly, this is one of the two songs of this period where the singer actually later had a grisly... Car crash. Do tell. Jay Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers were... Uh, All killed? <laughs> That's why they never had a second hit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were hopping around Ohio singing at county fairs or whatever, wherever you sang your one hit back then, and they had a head-on crash with their tractor trailer. I think their promoter fell asleep. He was the only one killed, but uh, band members were injured. No kidding. So the the lead singer was killed. The end. No, uh, the promoter. Oh, the promoter. Was was it's a, it's a happy ending. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, promoters are thick on the ground. And he was the one who fell asleep at the wheel, so there is some justice. But Dead Man's Curve by Jan and Dean is a sadder story. This is a massive hit, still on Oldies Radio now, and presumably still on Oldies Radio four thousand years in the future. I don't think that's true. Oldies, have you noticed that Oldies Radio tends to kind of move up in real time? Oh. It's, oh, a, it's a sliding right. window. It's now the Eurythmics. It's kind of like in Marvel Comics how like Iron Man f- originally was a POW in Vietnam when he invented his suit, but that has slid up with time. Maybe right. Korea, actually. Was it first Korea? Anyway, Korea, then in Vietnam. By the time you get to our era, it's Afghanistan. So anyway, in the 28th century, the oldie stations are all playing songs from 2780. I guess that's true. These guys have no <laughs> idea who Del Shannon is. Um, but this one is interesting because it ha- there is actually no girl. It's There's a, no a romantic or sexual angle to this one at all. It's just a guy who gets dared by some guy who pulls up in a shiny new Jag to drag race. And the song then geographically details their eight mile road race up sunset. So this is a Corvette versus a Jaguar. 
You've got to you've got to root for the Corvette if you're an American teen. Stingray versus XKE. Wow. Uh, so you're thinking of it as a geopolitical struggle. Sure. I this, mean, this song symbolizes the rise of America in a new age and the decline of the British Empire. Well, not to get again too uh, historiographic, but this was the rise of the European sports car as well. Um, immediately after the war, the European car manufacturers kind of were uh, a lot of them were struggling to retool to figure out a way to make, make cars that weren't just Wehrmacht uh, troop carriers. <laughs> and uh, so the Volkswagen, right? The, the Volkswagen Beetle and, but then MGs. Make it, make it look huge and less Hitlery. Right. MGs and Jaguars and even Ferraris. Like this was, this was the dawn of that era. And. And would they have seemed a little suspect? Would the workmanship have seemed a little suspect? No, no, no. In fact, they were, it was the kind of thing where if you were driving a European sports car and you saw any other European sports car, you would honk and wave. So the Corvette was designed to compete with European sports cars. It was the first American car built to compete with Jaguars and, and uh, Austin Healy's and stuff like that. Because if you think about the Corvette in its time, prior to that, there was nothing like it. Right. In American cars, there was no sort of small two seat souped up. Uh, and it was also the first fiberglass car. Ah. So the Corvette was like was essentially chasing the Jag rather than the other way around. Well, Jan Barry of Jan and Dean puts himself into the American car yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but when he gets to Dead Man's Curve, uh, the Jag slides into the curve. People have always told him, you know, stay away from Dead Man's Curve. You won't come back from Dead Man's Curve. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about this song is in the final verse, uh, the speaker, the driver is speaking to a doctor. The last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve. Oh, so he didn't die. He has either survived or I guess he could be bleeding out on, you know, <sighs> on Sunset and Vine. Uh -huh. You know, we, we don't know, but it's possible that this is a teen ballad where the, first of all, it's the singer who's in the tragic accident and not his or her beloved. Right. And he may or may not survive. Barry's co-writer, Roger Christian, wanted the drag race to be a tie. You know, that's, that, uh, that was yeah. his idea of a dramatic ending. And Barry insisted that there be a gruesome crash. I guess right. he was aware of the conventions of the genre. But uh, I don't know if you know this, just two years later, Jan Barry's musical career was essentially ended when he ran his Stingray into a gardener's truck just a few blocks south of Sunset in Beverly Hills. His actual Stingray, he was also driving a Corvette. Yeah, so just a few miles away from where the song took and, place. And it ended his career how? Uh, he was badly injured, and uh, when he finally died, which was decades later, yeah. it was, you know, of injuries, I think, from the crash. Wow. I don't know if he ever sang or recorded or toured again. Well, it seems like the song wouldn't have had the same impact if it was called... <laughs> Hurt Man's Curve rather than Dead Man's Curve? It doesn't seem as dramatic. I like to imagine that the dead man does, in fact, die. I don't know, you know, why he's telling, he's telling the story to a doctor, but it's his last will and testament. Maybe perhaps. Teen Angel went to medical school in heaven, and he's telling her all about it, uh, laying there on a, on a bed of clouds. Ah, I see. It's a posthumous doctor. Yeah. It doesn't have to be Teen Angel. It could be the Pearl Diver guy. I don't know. How many people are there in heaven at this point? <laughs> How many teens are there in heaven? They, they can only identify with one another. I mean, heaven is kind of full of teens. I wonder if one thing that drives it is a lot of 
kids musical not just james dean but a lot of kids musical idols dying very young right buddy holly and i mean richie valens when the plane crashed wasn't that kid like about to turn 17 or something like he was incredibly young super young and super and at the, these guys were at the height of their career too. johnny ace eddie cochran sam cook so a lot of your favorites yeah were dying young around this time James Dean, Marilyn Monroe died uh, right in this era. Sure. And maybe that's, maybe this is sort of the birth of the leave a beautiful corpse thing. Like mm. maybe that wasn't really a, a, a thing in mm. the twenties and thirties and forties. Your favorite screen stars did not, for the most part, die young. No. And scandal was frowned upon in the golden age of Hollywood. You were supposed to conceal your affairs and conceal your drug habits. In the sixties, it was, it became like, it was the dawn of that sort of uh, the narrative that you could be bad and still be good. And the studios are less powerful. I mean, they don't, right. they don't have a vast apparatus that could cover stuff up even if they wanted to. The genre pretty much reaches its pinnacle and ends in 1964 with Leader of the Pack. Oh, the top one of these tunes. He's uh, such a bad boy, the Leader of the Pack, that he meets her at a candy store. Uh-huh. He does sound bad. Although candy stores were much more popular then. You, you get the picture. Yes, we see. That's when I fell for leader of the pack. We don't we never learn the leader of the pack's name. At one point the singer even refers to him in the second person as I'm sorry I hurt you, comma, the leader of the pack. Well, that's back when that's back when people put uh, articles in front of every uh, <laughs> every person's name. Nice thank, to meet you, the Ken Jennings. Thank you, the president. <laughs> So maybe she doesn't even know his name or it really does. Secure, I mean, it's not even subtext. The fact that this guy's bad boy alpha status. I mean, he is literally the leader of the pack. Sure. Like an alpha wolf. Sure. It's hard to know how big the pack is too. It could be like 180 people. <laughs> he has a very large, it's a very large motorcycle pack. Yeah. Or the pack could just be like one guy, like one guy with a sort of a little bit of a limp who follows him everywhere. Is that really a pack? So how does the leader of the pack die? Uh, it's a rainy night. Yeah. The singer begs him to go slow. Mary Weiss of the Shangri-Las, I think we can assume, is the, she was only 16 when she recorded it and was apparently literally crying in the studio <gasps> at the over-the-top lyrics, which are crazy, by the way. <laughs> they told me he was bad, yeah. but I knew he was sad. Oh, I've been saying that to girls since I was 16. Look, I know I seem bad. I'm just sad. That just sums up adolescence in, you know, 10 one-syllable <laughs> words. Like, is it the worst couple I've ever written or the best? I'm not even sure. You know, the bad judgment of teenagers is kind of the subtext of a lot of these. And, mm -hmm. we, and we now know that uh, even though teenager was not a societal thing for many years, that physiologically it is very much a thing, that uh, people are not mature-thinking adults until they're well into their early 20s. You know, you look at the teen brain and... Uh, the connections to the frontal lobe just have less myelin. Right. The fatty substance that helps, you know, make nerve impulses insulated and more... Uh, Moderated. <laughs> makes you less likely to ride your motorcycle on a rainy night. <laughs> and so when teens make bad decisions, it's because they actually have a different, less reliable, you know, heuristic for what good and bad decisions actually are. And so how does that explain all the bad decisions I made in my 20s and 30s? Did I just not have enough myelin? Yeah, maybe there's a perpetual myelin uh, deficiency. <laughs> maybe cases. I should start taking little little myelin pills. Maybe that'll tighten up my decision making process. Before Christmas, we were we were out getting a tree, and uh, my 14 year old son loves getting a tree. He's wearing a Santa hat. He is ready to go, uh -huh. and he hops out of the car, 
And then he just frowns and gets back in. And I was like, come on, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go pick out a tree. Don't you want to help? And he's like, uh, it's muddy out there. He had worn his brand new, you know, white glowing, do the right thing. Nikes, not anticipating that in Seattle in December, a tree lot might be gra- muddy, <laughs> oh, muddy so, gravel. So uh, such a bummer. And he didn't bring his dickies. Just unable to make the rational decision. Hey, I'm going to be outside today. What if I do not wear these gleaming, glowing white shoes? Well, I look forward to the to the teen ballad about your son's muddy sneakers and him portraying that as a, a story equivalent to losing his beloved I went back to the car. She went back to the car for my white sneaks. <laughs> the, uh, I guess my theory about these songs, besides just, you know, capitalism and people chasing hits, is that it was very difficult to write a love song for teenagers back then because courtship was very abbreviated, you know? Sure, you couldn't actually admit to having sex. You could only talk about kissing. Yeah, and yeah, nothing would ever get hot and heavy, you know. And then you sort of met your person and married them pretty young. Right. And that's not a super compelling romantic narrative for a song. Right. I mean, you can do the the whole kind of wouldn't it be nice kind of yearning like, oh, what if we were married? Then we could... We could kiss. You know. We could go all the way to third base. We could neck. But the idea, right, that your true love died and for the rest of your life... That was it. That's a kind of permanent monogamy that is just as, uh, you know, chaste and beautiful as marriage. But it also has this great sort of uh, Sturm und Drang romantic overtones that teenagers love. Wow. I kind of love it now, too. Are you going to write a bunch of uh, tearjerker teen ballads on your next record? A lot of broken glass. I'm not sure I could get away with claiming that my one true love has died, and that explains why I'm not married. And that concludes Death Discs. Entry 319.MK1610. Certificate number 34312. In the Omnibus. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, futurelings, Tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also maintain an Instagram account under the same name. Our address for email, uh, which uh, presumably doesn't exist in your future. There's no way it exists. You probably do not have an inbox with 25,000 unanswered emails like Ken Jennings does. Everyone still has a, in the future, still has a Yahoo email box. <laughs> That's just nothing but millennia old spam now. Yeah. A- A- AOL. I bet that spam actually is pretty interesting reading from the future. I bet spam has become sentient in the future. Sentient spam. It sends itself. I'm thinking both of sentient email spam and also a can of sentient spam. When you said that, I pictured like when the Muppet food used to sing, like a little can of spam with two eyes and one of those cute little Muppet baby mouths. I'm kind of actually seeing spam in the form of a giant clam that's uh, that's capturing pearl it's, divers. That's chewing on Roy Orbison's leg. <laughs> but it's so soft, you would probably be able to escape from, from carnivorous spam. Yeah, you just eat your way out. It's salty and delicious. Anyway, uh, time travelers, you may email at us. E- you may email us at 
omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, from our vantage point in the distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or what the tragedy is that will finally finish us. It will probably not be screeching brakes on Dead Man's Curve or a killer giant clam. But whatever it is is already out there. The meteor is in the sky. We hope to pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like every single one of the recordings in this project, may be our final word. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.